0: Uttered through your word, and we ask that it would touch hearts and sink deep into souls. And in Jesus' name, amen. So, the title of this sermon is Judge Not the Lord by Feeble Sense, and we'll come to the meaning of that uh, in just a few minutes. But of all the scriptures that I have spent time studying and had memorized over the years, uh, this one was a new one for me just in the past couple of years. And these are verses of tremendous comfort. In all circumstances of life, we can be absolutely certain that God is commanding all events. There is never a time when we are outside of His will or His plan. Even when we are walking far from Him, we can be absolutely certain that what we are doing in life falls within His perfect plan. It is impossible for us to deviate from this. Even world events, all the way down to what you ate for breakfast this morning, was covered and determined by God. So what's the obvious implication of this up front? Well, it's very simple. There is no need to ever worry or be concerned about anything in life in any possible circumstance you may find yourself. If we truly believe that God is love, John, 1 John, he tells us that, then it's impossible for him to act in a way that's unloving ever at any time. And God is an extreme God. So anytime He acts, it's in the most impactful and largest measure. So whenever He acts, it is the most loving thing that could be done. And if we also believe that He is completely good, as He tells us in Exodus 34, full of goodness and truth, and if we also believe, Romans 8:28 that He only acts with good towards us, as He tells us, and we know that in all things, things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. If we genuinely believe those truths, and we believe what we just read here in Lamentations, we can be truly certain that everything that happens comes from the love and goodness of God. A little bit of background here before we dig straight into Lamentations. This was written by Jeremiah, a prophet of the Lord, one of the major prophets, At what you could easily argue is the darkest time in the history of Israel, except for when they crucified our Lord. He served a ministry that was more than 40 years that we know of, over five kings, and only one of them was good. He came to prominence uh, speaking the word of the Lord in the 13th year of Josiah, 627 BC, and 40 years later, It was in, well, about 40 years later, it was in 586 B.C. that Jerusalem was sacked and besieged, and the Jews were carried away into exile. This man had a singular mission from God, and that was to proclaim repentance and proclaim God's judgment. By no stretch of the imagination, an easy task. Probably the only evangelist who ever had it harder was Noah, who knew for a fact that he would have exactly his own family be converted. And that was a hundred-year ministry, if not more. Jeremiah 1.5, this is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah at the beginning of his ministry. Before I formed you in the womb, so there's the beginning of providence in his life, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And it's a good thing, too, because we're covered under the nations. We're those people who get to benefit from the prophecies of Jeremiah, his entire life was dedicated to showcasing the providence of God. But it was a very sad life, to be sure, because he wept constantly over the fall of Jerusalem that he knew was coming and was unavoidable. People just didn't listen to his message. He was much like Isaiah. Who has heard our report and who has believed our message? He had the same challenge. And he was so sad that we call him the weeping prophet, or maybe you've heard the poetic term, a Jeremiahd. If you have a very sad speech or a sad poem, that's what it's called, it's a jeremiad. It was a devastating time in Israel, and he was devastated over their sin. From Jeremiah 9:1, "Oh that my head were waters and my eyes a formation of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people." It sounds as if he was so consumed with his weeping that he had lost all ability to cry and was praying for more of that same ability. He was mocked, he was imprisoned, he was thrown in a pit, and even after the exile took place, he had to flee to Egypt for his life because even those who were left over, who knew they were being judged, still wanted to kill him for his message. An unbelievably tragic existence for this man, if it were not for the God who loved him so much. And it was out of that sadness that he wrote the book of Lamentations. It's, it's really just a poem written in Hebrew acrostic form. It's, it's a, an acrostic poem. Each section of each chapter, except the last one, begins and ends with the Hebrew alphabet. This was a time of true physical devastation, true spiritual devastation, an emotional devastation, just, just complete destruction. And just to get a little bit of window into this, um, if you'd like, you can turn over to 2 Kings with me. 2 Kings chapter 25. Right in the very last chapter of this epic recollection of the deeds of the kings of Israel, Chapter 25, verse 7, and then reading, uh, let's see here, through verse 10. Then they, that is the Babylonians, killed the sons of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. True devastation. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, nebuzaradan the captain of the guard a servant of the king of babylon came to jerusalem he burned the house of the lord and the king's house all the houses of jerusalem that is all the houses of the great he burned with fire and all the army of the chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of jerusalem all around skipping ahead to verse 21 then and this is right after the Babylonians had gathered together even more of the people of the city. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. The most tragic of verses. Uh, there's a few others you could argue, but this is right up there. The glory of the Lord leaving Israel, that's, that's right there. The crucifixion of the Lord, that's there. But this is, this is just devastation. And Jeremiah was left to observe all of this with his own eyes. I can't fathom what that would have been like to see this. So he begins Lamentations with his first gush of feelings and recollections on this. We don't know exactly when Lamentations was written, but it definitely was after the exile and probably not long thereafter. In chapter 1, he begins with this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people, how like a widow is she, who was great among the nations, the princess among the provinces, has become a slave. And then in verse 7, In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her. The adversaries saw her and mocked at her downfall. And then he tells us why. Jerusalem has sinned gravely, therefore she has become vile. He spends chapters 1 and 2 of this book just mourning. It's just, he, he expresses his feelings in a greater sense and to a greater degree than anybody else in Scripture. He just pours out everything he's thinking over five chapters and all through the book of Jeremiah. He's very candid in how he thinks and feels, as we just saw. The first two chapters are nothing but him mourning and recognizing that both he and his nation received exactly what they had deserved, the devastation. But things start to brighten up a little bit as we get about halfway through chapter 3, and this is a passage familiar to many, beginning in verse 22. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So in spite of everything, the truest devastation imaginable, the city torn down, burned, the walls. I mean, what possible value could there be in in destroying the walls of a city that you could just occupy and take over and defend yourself? Militarily, that made no sense. But they did it to complete the destruction that God had promised would happen. But even with this destruction in mind, with God's justice firmly fixed in his own vision, from having seen this, he recognizes the mercy of God. And he asks us a few critical questions. If we think back to this morning from what uh, Pastor Lamb had mentioned, with Jesus asking, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? He gives you the answer in the question. And it fits perfect because that is precisely what Jeremiah does for us here. Beginning in verse 37, Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? You really don't have to dig too deep to figure out that meaning. It's fairly straightforward. Nothing can happen unless God has not just known about it or seen it, but decreed that it would happen. We see a couple of rhetorical questions here that Jeremiah is asking that are ultimately unanswerable because the answer's in the question. Who can have it happen? Only God. And he's looking forward and he's seeing all this devastation and he's asking the people, how could this have come to pass? It's because God did it. That's the only answer. We see this rhetorical question idea brought up a couple other times in very related topics. In Job Chapters 38 through 41, Job has just gone through all the suffering and wondering why it took place. And God then proceeds to ask him three chapters worth of questions that he simply cannot answer. Just a couple examples. 38 verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Of course, Job has no answer. Then 39, 26, does the hawk fly by your wisdom and spread its wings to the south? He's got three entire chapters worth of these questions that Job just has to sit there and realize I couldn't possibly answer you because the answer is you. If you turn over to Romans 9, and I promise I'm not going to have you skipping all over the place. I brought you to Lamentations, which is probably hard enough. But let's just go over to Romans, and you may want to keep a finger here in chapter 9. Paul is anticipating some similar questions about why, if God is all powerful, certain things happen and how people can be responsible. So let's just read verses 12 through 23, and we're actually going to come and hit this again in, in a few minutes. Speaking of Rebekah here, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written: Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? There's your question. And Paul is gracious enough to answer, Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So that is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, here's another question, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? And then the answer, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Remember, there is no righteousness in God. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So we see this series of questions without answer, all about God's sovereign nature. So what do we learn from all these unanswerable questions? Well, God decrees everything. There is no unrighteousness in him and said positively he is righteous at all times. And we need to remember, like Psalm 50 says, we make the mistake often of thinking we are like God and that we can understand everything he understands. We are incredibly limited just by our very nature, and it's also our sin nature, too, that clouds things even more. And just to call to mind what we have from Paul here, it's actually a sin to question God. Who are you, O man, to question God? So when we don't understand circumstances that surround us, but we recognize that God in his providence made them happen, if we find ourselves in the circumstance, the only acceptable response is what we're going to see Jeremiah telling us to do, repent, turn to God, and reflect on the truths that we already talked about. God is loving, he is full of goodness, and he is totally sovereign. The title of our sermon actually comes from a poem by a man at the end of the Puritan era named William Cooper, or Cowper, depending on how you pronounce it. He was born in 1731 and he lived a, a very emotionally trying life. But he wrote a famous poem called Light Shining Out of Darkness. And just two of these stanzas direct us, and helpfully so, on how to understand God's providential, all powerful nature. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. To be sure, in all aspects of life, whenever we see something that is a tragedy or a calamity or anything that we would consider sad we can take absolute assured comfort knowing that god didn't just bring it about but is superintending our good at the same time job tells us how to respond in his own way in job 4 chapter uh, excuse me job 42 actually at the end of the book he shows us how to respond in these circumstances Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 3. This is after three chapters worth of God questioning him and Job not being able to answer. 42 verse 1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand things too wonderful for me which i did not know listen please and let me speak you said i will question you and you shall answer me i have heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eyes see you therefore i abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes that is humility before god when you don't understand your circumstances and i can assure you friends We've all been through a number of those types of circumstances and that is the only way to have peace through those is to recognize that God is bringing himself glory by bringing tragedy sometimes on us. That's a difficult saying to accept, but it needs to be believed and it needs to be trusted. He only acts in goodness. Going back to 37, verse 37 here, just touching on some of the meanings of these words, Who is he who speaks? Well, this who is anybody. In the immediate context, Jeremiah is talking to the people of Jerusalem's devastation. No man could have done this. It had to be the decree of God. And if we're to read this literally, it comes across as like an incredulous statement or question, who is this who speaks? As if to say, how could you possibly ask how this came about? It could only be from God. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord, this is an interesting use of Lord here because the word is not his personal name. This is Adonai. That's the original Hebrew here, which simply means the one who is supreme, the one who is the Lord over all things. Jeremiah is reminding us up front of our position relative to God. He is the Lord. That's a rank. It's showing his position over us and ours beneath him and to command something it means to decree it to appoint it or to cause it to come into existence you think of genesis you get the same idea when he brought things into existence that is how god operates he does it on his own and acts and makes it happen the niv says decreed which is a very firm way of saying he didn't just know what was going to happen in the future he decreed what would happen in the future the fact that you're here tonight you can rest in absolute comfort because god decreed that you would be here that's a wonderful thing isaiah 45 12 the lord speaking i have made the earth and created man on it i my hands stretched out the heavens and all this and their host i have commanded isaiah 48 5 Even from the beginning, I have declared it to you. From the beginning of time, God declared what would happen. Isaiah 44, 6, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God, and who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show show these to them. Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? God declaring all things. And again, as Brother Dave Berkeley, I read this morning, Isaiah 46, 8 to 11. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. There's Isaiah reminding us through the word of the Lord, our role and our position before Adonai. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Then in the last verse, Indeed, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. That's pretty airtight, friends. That's, that's it. Verse 38 here. We see all of this comes from the mouth of the Most High. Woe and well-being. So in this sense, woe is, is things that are good. And, excuse me, well-being is things that are good. And woe is things that are bad. Think of not necessarily good versus evil in that sense, in a moral sense, but in things that are Favorable to us or positive versus things that are adversarial or, or negative. Here we have a second word for God. This is Elion, the most high." Again, another poetic reminder of his position relative to us. God's words are the motive power behind everything that was created, everything that exists and everything that happens. Think of Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. It is the very breath of God, daily, every second, that brings about woe and well-being. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3, 16. The Greek word there is theonoustos. It is the out-breathing of God. It is him putting his breath forward. And that's what we have in the scriptures. It's certainly not just a book. This is the breath of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And what is that gospel? It's only found in his word that he breathed out. For it is the power of God to salvation. Romans 1:16. So just putting all the logic together, it is God's word, his very breath that has created all things, that providentially since creation guides all things and guides us in the scriptures because it is his word and saves when it is shared and believed. That's huge, friends. His word, his breath does all of this. And Jeremiah is reminding us that all of this tragedy and goodness has come from his very word. It's interesting that he puts the bad first, that woe and well-being proceed, and not every English version does that, which is unfortunate because I think it's deliberate in the Hebrew that he mentions the bad first. Woe is calamity. Uh, it's, It's anything that is negative, that is a true adversarial event, and it may be caused by sin. It may just be something negative in your life that you had no control over. Paul reminds us it is not only appointed for you to believe, but to suffer. And he doesn't give us details on that suffering. He just says it is appointed for you to suffer. Lest we always think that things should go well just because we're saved. Amos 3.6, if there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? That's it. If something bad happens, we can never ask the question, where was God in it? The question is, why didn't I believe God did it? That's the question. And what am I going to do about it? So, what does this really mean for us in this section? It means that the same thing, it means the same thing for the ancient Jews as it does for us. It means there is absolute comfort in God's sovereignty, in his nature, his all consuming providential power, not just in creating, but in sustaining everything. And our duty is to respond in worship and humility, just like Job did. Think of Job 1.21. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. He didn't just acknowledge what actually happened. He then worshiped and gave God the glory. Blessed be the name of the Lord. At the height of his trials, he understood exactly who had brought this about and in his own good pleasure, for his own glory. Even if we can't understand it, that's okay. We're not called to understand it. We are just simply called to believe it. Verse 39, the last of the three questions. Why should a living man complain? A man for the punishment of his sins. So the immediate context here was, was obvious. Why are you complaining about what has happened? Because God promised you would be punished if you continued to reject him. the wider context for us remembering that jeremiah was a prophet to the nations to us as well no person has a right to complain when god provides the justice or chastening or punishment that he promised would happen if we sin we have no justification to fuss at god for anything that ever happens to us in the case of the wicked it's useful to draw a distinction here somebody who never believes in christ That punishment is now, in this life, intermittent, but will be permanent in hell forever. But for the saints, for those of us who acknowledge that Christ is in fact our Lord, punishment or chastening is actually an act of love by God. Just because God had punished the Jewish people did not mean they lost their elected privilege in his sight. He said he had loved them with an everlasting love. His elected people. And the same thing is true for His saints. For believers, when we endure hardship, whether brought about by our own sin or not, it is not a bad thing. It is an act of love. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest His correction. For whom the Lord loves, He corrects, just as a father, the son in whom He delights. So the question may come to mind then how are we responsible for our own sins if God has actually decreed everything that happens. It's an obvious question and it comes up a lot if you watch evangelistic radio or watch radio. Watch evangelistic videos on YouTube or anywhere. You'll see that come up. Well how am I responsible if God made me this way? It's a fair question. And the scriptures don't truly give you an answer other than who are you to question God? So we'll go back to Romans 9 again, because I think it's useful to read that one more time. Romans chapter 9, if you're still there, verses 18 through 20. Therefore he, God, has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. So Paul anticipates this question, how can you possibly be held responsible for your sin if you were made to be a sinner? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, oh man, who are you to reply against God? So there's your answer. You're not given one that you can mentally process. That's just something we have to accept. We are limited In our ability to comprehend the Almighty. That's just it. There is no other answer. And the scriptures don't apologize for this either. They are more than ready to present both of these truths in the exact same passages. So just a couple. You can turn here with me if you feel like, but you don't have to. If we go over to Isaiah chapter 10. And again, you don't have to go there. Mm -hmm. Isaiah chapter 10, beginning with verse 5 and 6, this is at the time when the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, had fallen to the place where they had totally rejected God and he was going to punish them first before Judah. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. Assyria was the nation that God used to carry off the northern kingdom. And he says, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation, Israel and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Wow. God directing the king of Assyria to punish his people. But wait, there's more. Verse 12. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria, in the glory of his haughty looks. Same chapter. God makes no apology for saying, King of Assyria, you will do as I command you, and I am going to punish you for doing exactly what I commanded you. The scriptures do not equivocate on this. They are perfectly comfortable to have this in the same text. And we have to just accept that this is righteous. The king of Assyria did nothing that he didn't want to do. It accuses him here of having haughty looks and a prideful attitude. He was a pagan, no doubt. But the scriptures do not equivocate on this. And then we see this again, perhaps in a a more poignant way, in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's first epic sermon that he ever provides. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Now listen for the total sovereignty and providence of God and also the responsibility and ownership of her sin. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Did you catch that? By the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, the Lamb of God, who was slain before the foundation of the world, was pre-planned to die for our sins. Yet, the Jews are perfectly responsible in sin for having crucified their Savior. And the Bible has no problem putting both of these ideas together. So we need to be perfectly comfortable in accepting that they are both righteous and true. Because remember, it's a sin to question God's righteousness because that's what we're actually doing. If we say, God, how could you do this? We have to accept that this is righteous and this is good and it is loving because that's who he is. And he has no other character than to act in a loving way. So what then is, is going to be our response? And what was the response required of the people at the time? He moves now in Lamentations 3, verse 40, to a corporate sense. He's no longer talking about individuals. He says, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. This is a corporate call for repentance. The word search here is to dig aggressively in the ground. For something that you are looking for and to examine is once you have found it to thoroughly investigate it and it's worth us asking the question here when was the last time we as individuals or even as a church had, when was the last time we truly sought deep into our souls for sin that is there that is offensive to God that might be a stumbling block to our relationship with him it's a difficult question friends we see this, uh, this type of examination in Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you have searched me, same word, and known me. Psalm 19, we cry out, or we need to be crying out to the Lord to search for sins that we know about and don't know. It's a uh, hymn, we've, it was our hymn of the month a couple months ago. We repent for things we have done that are known and unknown. It is imperative that we turn back, as the prophet tells us to, to the Lord. And the Lord here, as he says, verse 40, and turn back to the Lord, now we have a different word. This is Yahweh. This is his personal name. This is God's loving name for his people. It is critical that we get that this is now a personal thing. God is not abandoning his people this is a loving gift that he calls us to repentance. In fact, the gospel message itself is just that. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn back to Yahweh, that name of God that's used here. This is a complete repentance, this turn back. It, this is not, I really made a mistake and I'm sorry about it. This is God is now my Lord. He is a personal Lord to me. Verse 41, it shows us this is total surrender. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have a fourth name for God here. This is El, and we see this as a prefix in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. It's El. That's his name. That's his position. He is in heaven, and it's important to note here that the prophet says, turn back and lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. He is supreme. He is that creator. He's that providential guide that we've already talked about. In 1547, to to best explain the, the, the phrase, lifting our hearts and hands, it's a bit confusing, but I think Calvin explains it best. He had a personal seal, a personal symbol that he would put on his items and documents. In 1547, he had an image of a heart just drawn in a hand being held up to God and he had a motto written on it and in the latin it reads cor meum tibi offero domini prompte et sincere and in the english it's my heart i offer to you lord promptly and sincerely this is a complete turning to god a complete act of submission and reverence to him as your lord that's what he is commanding Verse 42, rounding out our passage. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. Well, that's a peculiar way to end a section. You would think it would be something along the lines of, I'll restore your fortunes or I'll restore your land or something that's cathartic. But it's not. You have not pardoned. And again, in the immediate context, it's obvious. He he was staring at the devastation of Jerusalem So he knew he didn't pardon. He didn't pass over the sins. He had let that go long enough and finally had meted out his judgment. But in the wider sense, he hasn't pardoned any sin either, ever. Then you ask the obvious question, well, the Bible's all about forgiveness of sin. Yes, it is. There's no question it's about forgiveness. But the word forgive does not mean to cancel a debt. It means to move a debt. That's a big difference. If somebody owes you money and you say, that's fine, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay me back. The debt's forgiven, but it's still paid for by you. You lost your money, period. Every sin is paid for. From the first sin of Adam and Eve to everything we will do and the rest of the world will do up until the Lord comes again. God does not pardon He laid that on His Son. God punished Israel. All sin will be punished. And He had to do this because the Psalms tell us He is a just judge. He cannot just let sin go. It is all to be punished. But Jesus did it for us. Thank God. Isaiah 53, the chastisement of our peace. The only reason we have peace is because the great chastisement the beating down of God's wrath was put on his son. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, Christ. Then in verse six, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So friends, it's a difficult word, but every sin will be paid for. Now, through Christ, and we accept his sacrifice, and we acknowledge him as Lord, and we can take all these beautiful promises of his love and his goodness and enjoy them forever or we can endure those punishments eternally in hell that is a vicious thing to think about friends and i just pray that if there's anyone who doesn't know you just come to christ made it all the way until the end romans 10 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we confess you are Lord. And if there's anyone who doesn't do that may they make that today may they make that decision that they must make we are called to make you have made us volitional choice-making beings that though you have decreed all things we are still responsible for our choices if anyone doesn't know this and doesn't know you may they come to you today we thank you for the gift of your providence that we can never be out of your will. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you.